The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the Napsack Files podcast studio in beautiful, sexy, steamy Studio City, California. For now, this is the three things the Napsack File podcast feed. I'm Ken Napsack for this edition of a show where, well, here's what we do. I list three things because I want to, to support a topic, to get behind an idea, put it out in the world. That's right, the three things. In case you didn't hear the last show or just joined me for the first time in a while, I do do uh, my big interviews. I sit down with someone I know and love and share that world and share that interview with you. Uh, July is looking like a crazy month for me with work travel, moving, uh, and the idea, uh, not the idea of scheduling guests, that's not a bad thing, but the actual logistics of scheduling guests during this month has been tough, so I figured let's transition to just a kind of a month of the three things show, and then once I move, once I settle back into my new place, set up a permanent studio, it is going to be a lot easier, a lot uh, more fun to bring you regular programming up to two times a week again. I want to get back to that goal of an interview in an AppSock Files. That's what's going on, just so you know. We have a big show coming out soon. Yep, Game of Thrones. You heard of it? Game of Thrones is one of the reasons I get up in the morning. Game of Thrones is perhaps the best thing ever created outside of Star Wars. All right, I'll try to put that, try to put the hyperbole aside. But I wanted to do uh, the Game of Thrones three things this week, and this was actually suggested by someone on. Patreon, and that is uh, where I have uh, a great collection of supporters, and if you want to be part of that team, go over to patreon.com slash thenapsackfiles and join up and support, and I want to thank Jason Humphreys, who suggested this, said, hey, the three things about Game of Thrones, he wants to hear that episode, no, no spoilers, why you like it so much. I am a big fan, too. And, Jason, a lot of people are big fans of Game of Thrones. Some are, but hear us out. Hear us out. And, as you know, I talk Game of Thrones uh, often on other spots. We used to do it here on the Knapsack Files with the Night is Dark podcast with Maude Garrett, Tiffany Smith, myself, and later Michelle Boyd. Um, that kind of uh, went away, and then I ended up on Screen Junkies doing Watching Thrones, and then from there I uh, moved over to Collider, and that is where I am now with Collider Thrones Talk. And I am uh, also talking Game of Thrones daily on the Anchor app, and you should try it. Look up Anchor in an app store, download it. It's it's a little bite-sized podcast. Joseph Scrimshaw is on there, my friend Joseph, uh, and all that, uh, all that good stuff. Um, and I talk Game of Thrones on there on a show called Daily Thrones. So let's let's get it. Let's get it going, man. Let's let's talk about the three reasons I love Game of Thrones. I might be here for a while. I'll try to keep it bite-sized. I'll try to keep it straight to the point. There's a lot I could list. <sighs> a lot I can list. Ah, but uh, I'm gonna try to. Try to break it down to three. All right. Three things I love about Game of Thrones. Number three, an entire world to fall into. I, if you're like me, I am a sucker. An absolute sucker 
for myths and lore created by uh, one person or a group of people put into like a movie or a book, and you can just crawl into it. Now that is true of a lot of these movies and, and shows and books. There's a lot of them there. Hardly is there any is there a big epic adventure movie that comes out that doesn't have some history to it that you can uh, the characters talk about it, uh, all those kind of things. But um, there's nothing quite like Game of Thrones to me. When I first stepped into it, watching the show first, I wasn't sure what I was getting into. Uh, yep, some swords, some capes, some beards, some accents, some bad guys, some good guys. I love Lord of the Rings. All on board. I'd heard, hey, Game of Thrones, guy, you know, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, but on TV show form. Now, that's what you're going to get. So I was like, all right, first episode I'm going to check out. Within 30 seconds, I was absolutely hooked. Just seeing the White Walkers appear for the first time, it was like, I wasn't expecting this. And then what supplemented that was this rich tapestry of characters that kind of just starts to unfold real fast in that first episode. And right away, you learn you got this, this wall, and these guys at the wall guarding the world from some thing, and now we get to see that thing these these white walkers the others as they're called on the on the in the books more than white walkers um but immediately that you go to you go to winterfell you go to the starks you know, all right sean bean you think at the time's going to be your main character got it get it got it good um and he's got to go execute this ranger who fled from the wall because it's tradition and you're hearing about tradition you're hearing about uh you know ancient uh, creatures called direwolves that now showed up and they haven't been seen south of the wall for years and that's our house sigil and it means something and there's Jon Snow and he's not part of the Starks he's he's got some mother we don't know about and then you got Theon Greyjoy and he's not he's not their son he's a ward because there was this war about nine years ago which his father tried to rebel against uh, Robert Baratheon the king and not let's not forget Robert Baratheon the king who we've now met he's now come up to winterfell to talk to his old buddy ned they they won the crown together he said ned help me you help me win the damn thing help me uh, help me keep it um you've got this history and you, these battles and, and it's just immediately by the end of that first episode it was the acting and how it looked and, and the plot and all that kind of stuff in the moment. You know, Jamie Lannister pushes a 10-year-old boy out a window for love because he's having sex with his sister. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you're just like, I'm in. I'm overwhelmed, but I'm in. But for me, what immediately grabbed me was this amazing world that was felt so, you know, quote, lived in, something we hear a lot. And then uh, about midway through the first season, I ordered all the books. I said, enough's enough. I got to get these books. And I, was, I had this plan, this big plan. I was going to, after the first season, I was going to read the first book. After the second season, I was going to read the second book. I didn't want to be spoiled for what I uh, was going to see on the show because the, the death of Ned Stark, I guess also I should mention uh, spoilers of this episode, right? I'm trying, Jason. Try not to spoil too much, but there's just some plot points I got to talk about. Be wary. I'm sure even people in the small, far corners of the, of the earth know that Ned Stark died in season one. 
Um, but all that's going on. Uh, I didn't want to be spoiled, so I, I held off on reading the books. But then, then I started. I started after that first season. I started reading the book. And look, let's be honest. They're not easy books to read. We know that. George is a, he's a, he's a thick, dense writer, figuratively and literally. And, and he could probably sometimes use a, a more stringent editor, one that maybe cuts down some of the descriptions of food. But George is a great writer, and George has created this wonderful world. And each paragraph, each sentence, each character had, had a history to it. Not just a point of view, but a purpose and a link and a legacy. And then the maps came out, and I love maps. I could stare at a, a map of, of Middle Earth, the Lord of the Rings, for a while. I love Star Wars maps. I love, uh, you know, those, cut, those books where they, they cut away and they show the inside of, like, the Death Star or, or a layout of Tatooine. I, ju- I, I just like maps. I used to read Thomas Guides. For fun, when I moved to L.A., like, let me figure out how to get around L.A. I'll read this Thomas guy. So then I started getting my hands on, on Game of Thrones maps of Westeros and Essos and the Summer Isles and the Narrow Sea, the Shivering Sea, north of the Wall, the lands of always winter, down in Dorne, the, uh, the, the, the broke, broken uh, peninsula down by Dorne, and, and the Doom of Valyria, and Valyria, and, and, uh, and, and uh, all, the, all these little intricate details. A, side, a shy by the, the shadow, and all these kind of things. And it just, it soaked me in. Then, a couple of years ago now, George, George R. Martin releases the, the history of Westeros. Uh, the, the complete history of, of Ice and Fire. The world of Ice and Fire is the name of the book. And that one, I've read it cover to cover. And it's... Pretty much just like a history book told from a character's point of view, a maester, telling you all the story, all the backstory, back from the dawn of time all the way up to uh, right before the events of season one of Game of Thrones. And it is a, it is a great big history book. And I've, I've read it before. Occasionally I'll just pull it down off the shelf and just start going through it. And, and it's, it just pulls me in. And a lot of times, you know, um, it's funny when uh, when the show ends uh, during the off season, I don't really go into uh, want to watch Game of Thrones episodes until it's time for my quote official rewatch. Occasionally, I'll post an episode up or put it on HBO Go or something like that and watch it in the background. But that season ends, I, I kind of shut off. I kind of cool down, cool my Game of Thrones jets, and then I start having to ramp up again. I have to start ramping up. And the thing I love the most is diving into the histories of these families and these battles and these wars. And then sometimes I'll, I'll forget and I'll miss. And I'll, what's, the bat, what's the war of the Nine Penny Kings? What's that one? Who, second sons are there. Who's the other golden company? Who, you know, what's this prophecy? What do they believe here? How long ago was the long night? And I'll, and I'll start re- remembering and it starts coming. I have to like study and I love that. And it is not so much the plot points. I can get up to... I, I don't forget those plot points too easily. I've seen the show so many damn times. Um, but I, I don't forget those. And I can and the ones that I do, I get, all right, that's right. Yeah, Arya's doing this, and John's doing that, and that person died. Yeah, yeah, I got that. But it's that world that I have to really, really dig into. It's that world that I have to make sure I know. I joke sometimes, and I, I'm a history buff, but I joke sometimes I know the history of Westeros and Essos more than I do our own world or our own country. 
Sad to say that, sad to publicly admit that. Don't let that be the case for you, but sometimes I have to admit it is the case for me. Because I just love this world that is there. It is the definition of a lived-in world. And I know there's other properties, other sci-fi books. The Wheel of Time comes to mind by the late Robert Jordan. I, I have not read it, but I have friends who have. And it is an amazing, impressive world. And I've had them describe it to me. Uh, I, I get it. I know George R. R. Martin is not the only sci-fi writer to create this wonderful world. Um, but there's just something special about this one. It is on a level... And maybe, hear me out, in some ways exceeds Tolkien's world of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth and The Hobbit and all that stuff. It is, it is definitely on that level. And at times, I, I think at times, uh, just because it's so wrapped up in, in theories and prophecies and hints and clues and all those things. And these stories unravel before your eyes. Uh, they're tied in some, sometimes they're tied directly to the history and impressive levels. I don't know what George R. R. Martin, uh, George R. R. Martin is drinking out in that water in New Mexico, how he opens up his mind to this, but he's done a fantastic job. That is number three, an entire world to fall into. Number two, an unpredictable plot. Now hear me out. There's sometimes the Game of Thrones is predictable. R plus L equals J. Spoilers. Fans figure that one out early. It appears as though that's exactly what we're going to get. It appears as though we smart little smug fans sometimes get these theories right. Even George R. R. Martin has said, yeah, the fans are pretty good. Fans are pretty good. So that sometimes makes the story predictable. And then as the show's gone on, it's easy to predict how unpredictable it might be. Because we're so used to now seeing some of these characters get killed, some of these big moments that happen, we're like, aha, we knew it was going to happen. But that sometimes is what is so unpredictable of the plot. Each week, especially when I hadn't read the books yet, I didn't quite know what was going to happen. It kept me guessing. And then when I started to figure out, oh, stuff happens in this show, I bet that's going to happen. X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, no, there's no way that would happen. That can't happen. And then it does. Because it's, again, it's so predictable that it's unpredictable. Because there's still crazy things happening. And there's things happening that should happen. Because that's how sometimes it works. George R. R. Martin has created this story that is very much real, despite dragons and magic and white-walking zombies and seasons that last for years and years and all these fantastical things, it's still pretty much a real story in the sense of Ned Stark is, since we spoiled this, we can talk about it, huh? Since Ned Stark is captured and there's a crazy king in power and his mother wants everyone dead and wants her enemies destroyed and even though they make this deal, it would seem, you know, that's how life works. It doesn't always work out well. Ned is dead. Head chopped off by Sir Ellen Payne, the king's justice. That's how it should happen because that's, unfortunately, how it would happen. I remember watching that moment, the great episode, episode 9 of season 1, Baylor, and Arya Stark, Ned's daughter, younger daughter, sitting there watching from the statue of Baylor the Blessed, her sword needle in her hands, 
and you're watching this and it doesn't look, you're thinking, how is Ned going to get out? Again, I didn't know. I was pretty sheltered from the story. I hadn't read the books yet. I'm sitting there thinking, how is Ned going to get out of this mess? This is what happens, though. He's the hero of our story. There's absolutely someone's going to say, ah, it's going, going to be Arya. She's got this sword. She's got this blade. She's got the will. She's a feisty little kid. There's no way she's going to let her dad do it. She's going to save the day. They're going to run off. Ned's going to run back to Winterfell. Maybe Yorn will help him because he's there. That's why he mentioned. Nope, Ned's dead. Ned is dead. I couldn't predict that. A lot of people couldn't predict that. And it's just created this, this type of storytelling. Now I think other shows try really hard to do that. I think there is a, quote, Game of Thrones effect that we see a lot now. But the plot just goes into places that you, you just don't think. And then even, like I said, sometimes you you think oh, that'll probably happen because the story has to continue. Uh, but you don't want it to happen because you're so wrapped up with it. I, uh, I really wanted my man Stannis to sack King's Landing. I really wanted him to defeat the Lannisters. I knew in season two, I already know, knew at that point there were seven or eight seasons hopefully planned by the producers, whether or not Game of Thrones was going to get that chance from, from HBO. We didn't know at the time, but I thought, I, I know the show just can't wrap up in a tight little package here at the end of season two, but I wanted to. And then when Tywin burst through the door, saying the battle is over, we have won. It was, it was, it was, it was disappointed. I was sad. I was heartbroken. How could these Lannisters win? But that's the show. That's what George has done with his story. You just, you can't predict it, and you can, which makes it unpredictable all, all over again. And as we've moved past the books, and now I've read all the books, and I've read as far as I can, and we've moved past all that, I don't know now. No book reader really, truly knows and so as we enter into season seven on July 16th here, I don't know what I'm about to see. I'm back to being completely surprised. Because eventually, yes, the TV show, though they did change some things, and a lot of those changes I like, a lot of the changes, some of the changes I don't. But as we go into season seven, I got no idea. I am back to being in this spot. Where every week, every minute, every moment of this show will possibly surprise me like no other show has. The books did that for a while and maybe book six will finally come out and I'll be shocked again. Um, but that is definitely something that I love about this show. And the number one thing I love about Game of Thrones... The characters, yes, that would be the right answer. But it is the shades of gray in each character. It's shades of life. And because of this, because there is very rarely a clear-cut bad guy or a clear-cut good guy, there are some examples. There's, there's some purity in this world. But generally, all of the bad guys have some shades of gray in them. K. 
case in point, I'll say this. Case in point. Joffrey Baratheon and Ramsey Snow turned Bolton. These are purely evil characters, right? But if you really dive into it, Joffrey Baratheon had a bad deck of cards dealt to him. Spawn of incest, crazy parents, a crazy mother, a distanced father who is not even his real father, and a father who can't be his father because he's also his uncle. A lot of craziness. He's just not bred for sanity. And he didn't have the right people around him, the ones to control him. Tywin was not present for a lot of it. That might have changed something. Is there sympathy for Joffrey? No. He got what was coming to him. He deserved it. He did horrible, horrible things. And I wanted to see him go just as much as anyone else. But he's not purely evil if you really think about it. And then there's Ramsay Bolton. Ramsay is purely evil. Does some horrendous things. Deserved everything he gets. But there's some moments with Ramsay. With his real father. Particularly in season four and five. Where you kind of feel for him. And you kind of think he never had a chance either. He's a product of a real, real messed up environment. And a real, real messed up childhood. Now, those are the extreme cases. I'm not saying you're going to suddenly root for them. But each character is pretty complicated. Jamie Lannister goes from the bad guy in episode one, season one. In fact, all that season. Jamie Lannister is wonderfully crafted to be the bad guy of bad guys. He looks like a Gaston, Prince Charming... He's got this smug attitude. He's damn good at what he does, which is killing people with swords. He's pushing kids out of windows. He's challenging Ned Stark. Kills Ned's men. Leads this, uh, this leads Ned to be injured and chaos in the realm. And then Ned gets captured because uh, he, tr- he trusts the wrong person. A lot. Jamie Lannister's a bad, bad guy. Then he's captured and you're like fist pumping. Yeah, they got that smug jerk. But then season two happens. And halfway through season two, you start wondering. He's still bad. He's still smug. Even captured, he's smug. But there's that speech. There's that moment when he's... uh, when, he, when he's talking to Catelyn Stark, he says, you know, I have more honor than your precious Ned Stark, who came back f- from the war with a bastard. I've only been with one woman. It is it's my sister, and people look down on that, and I get it's abnormal, but my honor's better than Ned's. And from that perspective, it's true. And then bad things start happening to Jamie, and he breaks down. Horrible things happen to Jamie. He's a broken man. And then his reputation as a kingslayer, because that is what you are taught in season one, that the good guys, led by Ned Stark and the wonderful ruler Robert Baratheon, he's got some problems, but he seems like a good guy. And he's Ned's friend. They're the good guys. They say Jamie's a kingslayer. 
He killed the king he was sworn to protect. He broke an oath. And then that starts to unravel. And the way Jamie Lannister explains, especially when he's talking to Brienne of Tarth, midway through season three, you're like, wait a minute. Wait a second. He might have actually been very, very justified in what he did. Well, that's not fair. Even though he kind of continues to be on the, quote, bad guy's team, he's not. And Jamie Lannister is not a good guy, but he's definitely not a bad guy. And through that, you can learn a lot of lessons. Jon Snow learns it. When the Wildings, who again in season one, right from almost the beginning, you learn that the Wildings are bad. That's why the wall's there. That's why the Night's Watch is there. Oh, sure, there's some mythical, magical things from thousands of years ago we think might have happened, but no, we don't really believe it anymore. Snarks and Grumpkins is cheering. Well, we'll make fun of it. Uh, but then, as we, you know, start to learn that, well, the White Walkers and the Whites are real... The Wildings really aren't the bad guys. And Jon Snow spends time with them, and the Wildings become the free folk. And Mance Raider, a man who turned his back on the Night's Watch, becomes some benevolent leader who who gets people together and would probably be a better king than even our beloved Robert Baratheon, definitely better than Joffrey, definitely better than Stannis. And I'm a Stannis fan, that's tough to say. You, You get the sense that Mance would have been the best of all of them. The king beyond the wall might have been the king we all needed. And John is faced with that. Egret tells them. John's arguing with her. And he says, I'm Ned Stark's son. I I have the blood of the first men coursing through my veins too. And she says, well, then why are you fighting us? We're just born on the wrong side of this wall you guys constructed. Shades of Grey. Even Sir Alistair Thorne of the Night's Watch, brutal, harsh, an enemy of our beloved Jon Snow. There's some moments in season four where he gives a great leadership speech. It's tough, it's brutal, but it's true. He steps up and saves the day. You're rooting for him at one point. So even a character like that on a lower level and a lower tier, bad but real, and that's what the show really, really brings. I think you can learn a lot about life. You learn a lot about your perspectives of people. You learn that there's sometimes no such thing as a bad guy and maybe no such thing as a good guy. Some cases there are. And there's more good guys There's more pure good guys, quote-unquote, in Game of Thrones. I think Jon Snow, Samuel Tarly, Bran of Tarth, uh, Podrick Payne to a lesser degree, um, Davos Seaworth. There's a lot of those characters that are definitely definitely pretty pure. Um, But there's a lot. Arya Stark is a good, good guy, but she's killed. She's done some bad things. I have a lot of sympathy for Sansa Stark, but there's some shades of gray in that character. Some things she's done or possibly will do. She's had some horrible, horrible things happen to her. That I get, but it's really interesting. 
And that's one of the things I keep coming back to on the show. When I dive into the world and I get lost in the history and the lore, and then the plot itself, the story itself, churns forward. I don't know where it's going. At the end of the day, though, the thing that I, I look people in the eyes, oh, Game of Thrones, you got to get into Game of Thrones. These characters, they're so rich, they're so deep, they're so real. For a world that's so fantastic, for a world that's so over the top, that's you and me out there. And that's why it works. And that's why I keep coming back every week. So that's the three things I love about the Game of Thrones, a song of ice and fire. You guys probably have some opinions. If you agree, disagree, or have some of your own, you can find me on Twitter and use the hashtag TNF3Things. That is the number three, TNF3Things. Go ahead, post something there. If you're on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. Like the Facebook page for the Knapsack Files and my official Facebook page as well. Follow me wherever you want to go. We have the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash the Knapsack Files. If you want to be a supporter, go ahead and do it. I will humbly Humbly thank you. You'll get to do things like Jason Humphreys, who suggested I do this topic this week for the three things on Patreon. That's what we're doing. So that's it, guys. Game of Thrones Season 7 is almost upon us. Sit down, take it, enjoy it. I know I will. And follow me on Anchor, the Anchor app. Favorite my station. Don't miss a daily broadcast there. And, and... Don't forget on Collider Video, I'll be hosting Thrones Talk with Dennis Zen, John Roca, and Rachel Cushing this season. Going to be fun. That's it, guys. I got to go finish my Game of Thrones rewatch. I got to get ready for season seven. We'll see you next time on The Three Things. Three Things.